0: Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com/be to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com/be. This B podcast network show is presented by IXL, loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers. IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome rebel educators to this episode of the rebel educator podcast. Welcome rebel educators. I'm here today with Mike Flanagan. He is the CEO of mastery transcript consortium, a growing group of high schools creating a digital high school transcript that opens up opportunity for each and every student from all backgrounds, locations and types of schools to have their unique strengths, abilities, interests, and histories fostered, understood, and celebrated. Mike oversaw the design and development of Mastery Transcript software products, connecting with members and advisors to manage the MTC product roadmap until May of 2021. He is an experienced education technology executive, most recently having served as CEO of the Services Division at the National Association of Independent Schools where he led a complete redesign and relaunch of their school and student services financial aid platforms. We use that platform. Thank you. So welcome, Mike. Welcome to the Rebel Educator podcast. Thank
1: you, Tanya. It's great to be here.
0: So I'd love to hear more about the transcript and also dive into a little bit about assessment and how those things are connected. So starting there, kind of sharing what are the elements of the mastery transcript that make it different from a traditional report card.
1: Yeah, I think the best way to start is to focus on what is Mastery learning? Like what do our schools have in common, right? So if you think about the Mastery Transcript Consortium, the consortium is actually in some ways more important than the transcript itself. And so what the consortium is, is a group of just under 400 innovative schools. And what's interesting is um, it's a pretty diverse group of schools by the standards of the school transformation space. And what I mean by that is, generally speaking, you have public district schools work together in one lane, charter schools are in another, independent schools are in another, and then for-profit or virtual schools are off on their own kind of islands altogether still. And in MTC, all of those schools and school types and school leaders are working together. What they have in common is a pretty shared vision for what high school could and should look like. And it's one in which we're no longer giving credit based on seat time but we're giving credit based on proficiency or mastery. We're no longer focusing just on English, math, science, and social studies, but we're thinking about a more comprehensive set of skills that we want young adults to be able to have and things we want them to be able to do to be successful, both in college and career. And then we're also thinking about how we assess kids. And we're moving away from practices like norm-based grading or grading on a CUR, where the primary purpose is to sort children and focusing instead on using things like criterion reference grading or, uh, you know, so-called standards-based grading, where the assumption actually is all kids can and should be capable of performing at a high level if we give them enough individual supports and structures to get there. So the interesting thing about that schooling model, right, is if you're a school that's doing all those things and you're really firing on all cylinders, you literally stop producing all of the metrics that are the cornerstones of a traditional high school transcript. You don't have credit hours anymore. You may not have grades or GPA, and you may not even have courses. You may have kids doing kind of individualized learning paths. And so it creates this paradox where you've got school models where we know as educators that what's happening is amazing. We can see the skills that our kids are developing. Parents look at those models and they see them and like, wow, this looks great. I would like this for my kid. But then a fear kicks in. It's like, oh, well, this is so innovative that we're starting to look unfamiliar. And in some ways, we worry that the kids are no longer compliant with things like the college admissions process. And that, for us, was a real sticking point. It's sort of the answer to the question of, well, if these schooling models are so great, why aren't they everywhere? Why aren't they taking off like wildfire? And the answer is we have an incumbent system, a way we think about defining high school, and the way we think about what kids do in high school. And that started as a way of sort of measuring or packaging high school, but now has actually come to define it. There are school leaders right now who actually will say some version of my job is to produce grades. My job is to deliver a certain number of credit hours of instruction. And in the absence of a viable alternative, then these models that we're so excited about can never really scale or kind of take root. Uh, so that's where the transcript comes in. Our transcript, which we've built with our schools, it's digital, it's competency-based, and it includes evidence of student learning. If you're a school that has, call it a portrait of a graduate or a learner profile, but if you're measuring what your kids are doing in terms of skills and abilities, and you're also creating opportunities for kids to, frankly, produce or create things, things that they're proud of and they want to share with the world, then you're probably a good candidate for a master transcript.
0: I want to go back to the idea of almost 400 innovative schools in the consortium. And you talked a lot about project-based learning and students building skills and working on things that they're doing that don't fall within a, a typical subject silo. So of your 400 schools, are all of these schools kind of out there in this world of innovation where their students have individual learning paths and are pursuing projects and have interdisciplinary studies? Or do you have still a range of schools that are doing Some subjects, some projects, some pieces, you know, what does that look like for your participating schools?
1: Yeah, it's definitely the latter. We have some schools that are like 100% there, like everything is individualized, project based, experiential. Um, There's no single curriculum that we mandate, right? So MTC doesn't supply or mandate a curriculum to our schools. We don't insist on a particular pedagogical approach. What you'll see is sort of clustering around a lot of different practices. You'll see a lot of project-based learning. You'll see a lot of the capstones. You'll see a lot of real-world learning, a lot of problem or inquiry-based learning. But we do have some schools that join us in kind of an aspirational footing. They basically say, look, we've got a school that until recently has been really traditional, but something is inspiring us or driving us to change. There could be a lot of reasons why a school might want to change. Uh, It could be a school that's serving kids that are traditionally underserved by traditional school models, right? They're in low SES communities. There's black and brown kids who have been underserved by traditional models. And the school leaders have been given a mandate to change. It could be schools in really high-performing schools that look like everything's going great in terms of test scores, in terms of college placement outcomes. But parents and educators and kids are starting to see the signs that, like, the model isn't really working, and at least not in terms of, like, whole child development, right? So, you know, I think the data we're starting to see in terms of mental health issues and anxiety and stress among kids who are in nominally high-performing high schools is telling us that something isn't right with that particular recipe. You know, one way of shorthanding it is we're focusing so much on preparing kids to apply to college that we're actually reducing their ability to actually thrive in college by focusing on things that are kind of like really more short term as opposed to giving them the full toolkit of skills that'll help them you know, really flourish when they're there.
0: So my colleges now have courses called adulting, where the students need to do everything that they didn't learn in, in high school and in life because they were so busy trying to figure out how to get into college.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think we can focus on sort of really tactical life skills, like doing laundry, but... I think we're really excited about is sort of the more richer kind of set of metacognitive skills, right? Understanding how you learn, understanding how to problem solve. Yeah, and I don't mean solving problems that are assigned to you in the context of a classroom, solving problems like, hey, what happens when, you know, you give it your best effort and for the first time in your life, you don't get excellent grades. Like, how do you deal with that feedback? How do you deal with those kinds of setbacks? Unfortunately, in a lot of traditional school environments, we've sort of engineered that kind of learning opportunity out of the system. We tell kids we want them to take risks, but we penalize them for anything less than 100% on any assignment they do. And so they learn really quickly that their best path is not actually to take any significant risks at all. It's just to do what they're told and try and be a little bit more perfect and a little bit more hardworking on the kids next to them. And I think we can do
0: better from that. So we're looking for that skill of being able to take constructive criticism and learn from our mistakes and to grow through that. One of the other things that you said earlier was taking the mastery idea of what high school should look like, like what could this look like, and building in the set of comprehensive skills. So that being maybe one of the skills, what other skills are you measuring as a consortium that's important for our students to have as they move towards college?
1: Yeah, I think one thing it's important to call out is that there are so many players right now that are active in the space that are doing amazing work in terms of school transformation, right? You've got nonprofits and think tanks and foundations. And so there's a lot of amazing work happening at the building level, the district level, the state level to create really thoughtful competency models for different kind of local and community use cases. So we realized really early on that We were not going to be in a position as MTC to sort of mandate a single model, a single set of skills, right? Our job is to sort of meet schools and districts and states where they are. And what we have built are tools and frameworks that take those models, but then display them to readers. You know, what you might think of as gatekeepers, whether they're hiring managers or admissions officers in a context and format and a user experience that is like really consistent and clear and easy to understand. So it's basically, how do you embrace kind of the local kind of diversity of these models, but also reduce some of the crazy making that comes from having thousands of different models like out there in the ecosystem? So that's an important way of saying we don't mandate a single set of competencies. However, what you're going to see in almost all of our schools is really serious attention paid to different iterations of the so-called four C's, you know, communication, collaboration, critical thinking, creativity. We're really interested in the work that's being done by an organization called America Succeeds on kind of creating what they call durable skills. And I, creating is the wrong word for them. They're really kind of, it's really about naming. They've done some really nice data-driven work looking at job descriptions. They did uh, kind of a meta-analysis. of I think it was like 1.8 million different job descriptions online and showing where the commonalities were, right? And not surprisingly, what hiring managers want are things like creativity, collaboration, critical thinking. Sort of the shorthand version of that is, many hiring managers will say some version of, we can teach a young person how to do technical skill X, Y, or Z that's specific to this job. We can't teach them how to think critically. We can't train them how to like work effectively on a team. If they don't have those essential skills by the time they get here, it it can be really hard to kind of get them up to speed. So. Those are the sorts of things that I think create real sustaining kind of value for young people as they transition from the world of education to the world of workforce. And I think that's important because when we think about why we're involved in education, it's about preparing kids for life, right? And so engaging in backwards design, what's going to help you be successful to build a career, to help you kind of be financially self-sufficient, it's a really important things to pay attention to.
0: We talked about using this a little bit for college and, and it takes away GPA, it takes away grades, it takes away credit hours. So how have you seen this being accepted or utilized by colleges? And have you seen a difference in acceptance rates or, you know, feedback that you've gotten from higher education?
1: Well, I think it's very difficult to calculate differences in acceptance rates without getting much, much larger data sets, right? So if you have, in any given year, a thousand kids apply to say Brown. Only twenty of them are going to get in, and we haven't had even a thousand kids using a master transcript to apply to any one institution, right? So it's not. There's no way that we're going to be able to calculate whether the difference is in terms of a kid using the mastery transcript to apply to school X, whether it would it would improve or hurt their odds of admission. What I will say is that the number of schools that have accepted kids using the transcript has greatly exceeded our expectations. We've had 285 colleges and universities accept kids using the mastery transcript. And every single one of those applications was done without a GPA, in some cases without courses and credit hours. So we know that the model works. What we've also gotten is a lot of qualitative feedback. We do a lot of inquiry before and after with admissions officers and readers. It's in our best interest to build things that help them do their jobs. Uh, We're not trying to make it more difficult. And what we're hearing is a couple of things. Some may be counterintuitive. The more selective the university, the more open they have been to the master transcript. And the reason for that is actually pretty straightforward. There's sort of a well-used joke, which is that if MIT just wanted to fill its freshman class with like kids who got an eight perfect eight hundred on the math, they could do that five times over, like with the number of applications they get. And that's true for pretty any of the sort of fifty or so highly selective colleges and universities that are in the country. It is worth noting, by the way, that it's really only fifty. There are fifty colleges and universities that accept less than 25 percent of their applicants or 20 percent of their applicants. And there's 4,300 colleges and universities across the country. The vast majority of high schoolers that choose to pursue higher education are going to go to a place that is close to open enrollment. But as a culture and the chattering classes, we kind of tend to focus on a really narrow band of super selective schools. So we have to explain to parents who care about that, that Yes, MTC can still, and a master Transcript will still give you access to one of those schools. The not-so-secret secret is that it's got nothing to do with the transcript. If you have a kid who's been in a schooling environment for four years of high school, where they're actually given real choices over what they're studying and how and where and with who, uh, they're allowed to go really deep in areas of real passion and interest um, they're allowed to take genuine risks and to fail and to try again and to learn from the, that experience. Uh, if they've been given exposure to certain kinds of learning models that rely on cyclical iterative thinking, things like design thinking or entrepreneurship or agile development, where true iteration and testing based on feedback is built into the curriculum, what you've got are these kids who, by the time they're in a college admissions interview or a job interview, for an internship, or a full-time job after they graduate, they're going to run circles around kids who have been in traditional linear call and response educational settings. I think if there's a question that we really don't equip kids to answer really well in traditional schooling, it's what will you do? What do you want to do if you're admitted to college X? We don't ask kids what they want very often at all in traditional school. We tell them what to do. So in some ways, that preparation, is being exposed to that kind of schooling model, That makes our kids wildly successful when they apply to college. The transcript is really just a shorthand way of capturing all of that rich learning that they're doing.
0: That's a fantastic explanation. You know, I thought about even as an elementary school, one of our graduate profile characteristics is scientific mind. And we use that term to cover the design thinking, scientific method, entrepreneurship, right? All of those circular models as we were creating the profile, we're like, all of these things kind of do the same thing where you're going through an iteration, testing something, seeing what works, what didn't, trying again, and really looking at how we can instill that and help our students to learn that process from a really young age. And you talked about the question of, you know, what do you want to do if you're admitted to college? And I feel like I was asked something very similar to that when I was admitted to college. And I'm sure I had some really lame answer of like, I don't know, I want to move away from home and learn new things or something because I was the kid who fit really well into the model and got good grades and had a good GPA and had everything I needed to go to the college I wanted to go to. But yeah, when asked what I actually wanted to do, or, you know, one of the questions we like to ask is, what problem do you want to solve in the world? I would have had no idea at how to answer that question because it had never been posed in any sort of way like that. It's a really good distinction to talk about just the different skills and the different ways that our students are learning. Outside of a a traditional, what we think of as traditional education.
1: And I want to be clear that I don't think every young person needs to start college with a 100% accurate forecast of what they want to do with, you know, into their adulthood. I'm a big fan of the liberal arts and I'm a big fan of like, you know, the life of the mind and, you know, kind of going on a journey of discovery. I think there's a space for that too. But I think if you're given a choice between sending a young person into higher education, where their really only sense of self is like, oh, I'm a good student, right? I'm good with a number two pencil. I'm I'm good at doing what I'm told. Versus somebody who has like some kind of point of view on what they really care about, even if they change and grow in a different direction later. I'm just sort of a big fan of the idea of vectors, right? Like, hey, you should be pointing in a direction with a sense of velocity. And yeah, you may change course along the way, but like, let's get you out there like, with at least some kind of momentum in a direction. I think you're starting to see more awareness of that, too, on the folks in higher ed admissions, right? Nobody wants to admit a kid who is academically perfectly well-prepared only to see that young person wash out, you know, in less than a year due to other sort of non-cognitive issues that may be going on, right? The ability to live away from home for the first time, to be resilient, to solve problems, adulting, as you said earlier, but we know that that happens, and that is a real phenomenon. So I think there's sort of a growing kind of realization, particularly coming out of COVID too, for a lot of reasons, right? We have more kids than ever before coming off of two years of really kind of erratically deployed education that are going to be starting this school year in the mid year in this school year right now with really differing levels of preparation. Right. And we also have COVID has created a kind of a natural experiment on the part of the college admissions, right? Where College admissions didn't want to get rid of grades or the SAT or APs, but in that first spring of the pandemic, all of those things got massively disrupted. But admissions still happened, right? They still read folders. They looked at kids' applications. They made decisions. And while many of them are still a little bit shell-shocked by that experience, saying, yeah, I really don't want to go back to that. So some of them were saying, hey, you know, we actually learned some things. We learned that there are certain kind of non-cognitive skills That are actually really useful, that we actually prize here. And I think they're getting more crisp and clear about being able to communicate those and describe them as skills. Whereas previously they might have described them as sort of like ineffable qualities like fit, like, hey, we're looking for kids who will fit well here. Well, I think if you want to have equitable admissions models, and, and to their credit, many of those admissions leaders do, many of those kind of, you know, school and university chancellors and presidents are, I think, really making good faith commitments to having more equitable admissions practices. Well, to do that, you got to be transparent about what fit really is. What are you really looking for? What are these things?
0: I have a question about the transcript and how it might relate to the idea of a portfolio of work. We sometimes think of an artist portfolio of work, but also like a project portfolio of work or just the things that a student has done over time. And who's writing the transcript? Are students writing their own transcript and sharing their knowledge, or are educators writing this transcript for them in the sense that they would from a report card? And how do those things connect or differ?
1: I think the way you framed the question is spot on because it sort of kind of points at the answer. What we tried to do was create a hybrid model that had the best of both worlds. So here's what I mean by that. If we think about what we generally like about portfolios, what we generally like about them is a sense of student agency and really investing and kind of empowering young people to choose the words that they're most proud of and to highlight it and use it to tell their story. When we think about some of the shortcomings about portfolios, one is this sense of kind of authenticity or authorship. If any record is solely owned by the student, it lacks a quality that either hiring managers or admissions people are looking for, which is a sense of verification like or validity. Say what you will about the traditional high school transcript, it's an official school record. It comes from the school and the school is asserting, hey, Tanya got these grades. Mike completed these courses, right? And so it has a level of value for readers that is harder to do if you are solely allowing kids to kind of own the whole credentialing process. Uh, The other challenge with portfolios is that more often than not, they're not assessed, which is to say... When you look at a portfolio, in most cases, the reader is being left to their own devices to look at the work and to interpret it and to say, hey, is this high quality or is it not? Now, that can be really useful for certain use cases, right? There are colleges right now for the visual arts that will have aspiring students send portfolios of their artwork. Colleges of the performing arts will ask for auditions, which is a different kind of performance. But those are really use cases where, generally speaking, the faculty or other expert reviewers are going to be involved in directly looking at the work and assessing it, precisely because it is hard to assess. The average profile for a college admissions reader is a recent graduate of that college, probably on average shoot have three years out of school. There's a reason we have college applicants write personal essays. It's because it's a neutral artifact that anybody can kind of read and assess without specialized training. But if I've gone down the rabbit hole and done a really complicated science project and I throw it over the wall to, say, me, who was uh, an English teacher, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to assess that or say, hey, is this really high quality or not? So that process of sending unassessed portfolios breaks down in the real world of most college admissions offices. And there are exceptions, right? MIT will invite kids to submit maker portfolios of their engineering projects, and they will have the faculty review those. But even in describing that, you can hear how that's kind of a non-standard use case. Most colleges aren't doing that. So, what's great about portfolios is that they're owned by the student, and the students are involved in picking their work. What they lack is that ability to be authorized or sort of vouched for by the issuing institution, the high school. Uh, and they also generally lack assessment. So, what we've built is a model in which students are encouraged to share artifacts of their learning. We call it evidence, but that evidence is displayed in the context. Of the school's competency model, and so instead of me just saying, "Hey, here's a paper I wrote. Read it. And tell me what you think," what I do as a learner is I submit it, and then my teachers say, "This is a paper that Mike wrote under our supervision. We assessed it, and we agree that it's excellent evidence of a particular skill or a particular area of content and knowledge." And so we maintain that sort of assessment role, and, and we keep that on the side of the school or the issuing institution. So I think that's that kind of hybrid model that we think has the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. One of the questions that I love to ask all of my guests is if you can share a story that you remember from your elementary school years.
1: Yeah, gosh, I had a teacher who my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Chris, and he was known throughout the school as being a teacher who was really good at science. And like a lot of little kids, I I was really obsessed with science in the natural world. And so he would do things which I think are now kind of fairly common exercises, like, you know, dissecting like owl pellets, right? And seeing like what the owl ate and you'd find like a little skeleton of a mouse or a chipmunk inside. But he also did some stuff that was pretty gnarly. Like he took a goose and like dissected it in real time and like stood on the desk and like show us like how big the intestines went like, from floor to ceiling. It was was uh, exactly like permissionless kind of learning. But the other thing I, I really appreciate about his class is that, you know, and this said a lot more about me as a learner is that. Yeah, sometimes sometimes I would get off in my own head a little bit and I would just delay like reading my own book, you know. And so we had sort of a, a tacit compact. It's not the word I would have used at the time in fifth grade, but I'll use it now where you uh, would let me read my book. As long as if he called on me and asked a question, I could get the answer right in real time. And I share that not because it's a weird humble brag about me reading books and still paying attention, because sometimes I got the answer wrong and I had to put my book away. But more than like, I think he realized on some level that, like you know, maybe because I was just a very introverted kid or whatever, that sometimes I just, the thing I needed to be doing in any one moment of time was just reading my book. And he was trying within the context of his class to find a way to make that work, but still sort of making sure that like the core stuff was being tended to. So I didn't have, actually, it's really funny that you asked me this question because I never thought about it until now, but like. It's only now doing this work that I do today and working with all these schools that I have a different language to describe that. He was trying to individuate, right? He was trying to provide some kind of personalized kind of approaches and instruction to kind of like what I needed. And uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to him. Yes.
0: Yeah, so I was going to ask if you noticed and maybe you didn't because you were a fifth grader and lots of us don't notice what else is happening in the class. But was he making kind of allowances and changes for other students in the class too, so that they could do the things that they needed to do for themselves and for their learning in that moment?
1: You know, I was not aware enough of what was going on in the dynamics of that fifth grade classroom to report back on that. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that the answer was yes. I'm also willing to own the fact that one of the things that was, has been a big change for me doing this work is that up until very recently, I had a very sort of benign and almost kind of rose-colored glasses view of school. Simply put, when I was a kid, I loved school. Like I was really good at it and it was my happy place. First day of school for me was like the happiest day of the year. I was like, I run school. And even as like a young teacher, I still kind of cringe a little bit about how I kind of brought that mindset with me a little bit. Where when you're working with kids who don't love school, right? What does it mean to really be empathetic, to get into their head and figure out what is it about school and schooling that's not working for them? Right? How can you work to solve that problem with them instead of assuming that the problem is somehow with them? And really the greatest gift that I was given, both in terms of my doing this work today and also sort of as an educator, is that when our oldest child, who is now in college, was in middle school, he was really struggling in uh, some of his schoolwork. And I went in and I had with you know, my wife and I sat down, we had a teacher conference with one of his teachers and she just said to us, well, you know, Mr. Flanagan, some kids just don't want to learn. And I got to tell you, it like threw a circuit breaker in me, like something in me kind of, I got a little bit radicalized because I was like, yeah, I don't think that's true. I know my kid and I think my kid is pretty bright and creative. And if something isn't clicking here between the way. You're defining school and what I know he's capable of. I'm not willing to just go and say that he's the problem. And, you know, and our story has a happy ending because I'm a former educator. My wife still uh, works at a school. We had resources. We were able to do change a lot of things in his life and in his school experience to put him on a path where he is now, by any objective me- measure, doing really, really well in school. But I think a lot about how fortunate we were and he was to be able to do that. And it really sort of the thing that keeps me up at night is we're not moving fast enough. We're not moving quickly enough to rethink schooling to make that kind of experience available for other kids. Right now, there are other kids whose English teacher or math teacher is basically having some version of that discussion with another set of parents. Your kid just doesn't like to learn. And that's just not acceptable.
0: Yeah. And how do we move that from your kid doesn't like to learn, which like learning is inherent to the human condition. It's one of the things that we do and we want to do. And, you know, that maybe your kid doesn't want to learn that thing. But what about that thing is your kid interested in or how can we shift the situation or how can we shift the classroom or how can we shift the topic? How do we make those changes so that we can reach more learners? And I agree with you. It's just changes slow. I mean, I think
1: whether you're a parent or an educator, right? What the running joke is that young children, like once they really start to kind of get language, all they'll do is ask why again and again and again. Why, why, why? Uh, like you said, the learning orientation is hardwired. We unfortunately structure it out of a lot of our kids. Uh, and I think the thing that we're hoping to do is create space with educators. So that kid can continue to stay passionate and engage in what they're learning, but also do it in a way that is scalable, that does make sense in high volume environments like college admissions and employment applications. Because if we don't do that, then what it means is that the models that we're most excited about will only ever be boutique models available to a pretty small subset of kids. And I think we can do better than that.
0: Thank you so much, Mike. How can people get in touch with you?
1: Well, we're very lucky that we have a very complicated name, the Mastery Transcript Consortium. It's a bit of a tongue twister, but our website's really easy. It's mastery.org, mastery.org. Uh, and so anyone who wants to learn more about the work or how it worked with schools, you can find us there. And I'll just put in a plug that just like I said earlier, it's not really about the transcript. It's about the kids and it's about the learning models. It's not really about the transcript for schools. It's about this network of like-minded schools and the school leaders collaborating together to think about how we build better environments for our kids. The team and I are just really lucky every day that we wake up, we we'll work with that growing network of folks. And we think it's a pretty interesting conversation. And we hope that educators out there will reach out if they'd like to be part of it.
0: I hope so, too. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome.
1: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed the discussion.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, FlexTime enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com/b to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com/be. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? reliably meet Tier 1 standards, you can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.